I hope that we, by being criticised for doing something good and doing it for profit, we proved there was appetite for investing in companies that don't just put the profit motive first. If we are, for example, to accept a slightly lesser share of profit in exchange for a greater share of social good, a well-functioning system recognises that that hit should lead to something else being given. Now, this is a very unique situation, but for once, you're not going to be hearing from me at all in today's episode. In fact, your host is our past guest, Alexandra Tepledge, who you'll know from exiting her last company, Hassel, and then starting up Resi, which she's currently scaling like crazy. Um, but you might be wondering why I'm not in it. Well, because having set up this great live event in February with both Ananda Botton and Anne-Marie Huby of Just Giving... I became one of the first people in the UK to get coronavirus. Absolutely classic, but like the true adopter I am, and I wanted to be responsible. So sat at home on my sofa, wiped out for about three and a half weeks, and obviously not wanting to cancel this event, equally not really wanting to infect anyone in the audience, I called Alex up and asked her to step in for me as the interviewer, and I think she did a brilliant job. Don't you? If you do, then give her some love on social, a de pledge. Uh, let us know if she should even replace me full time at Dan Murray Serta and at Secret Leaders. I won't take it too personally because I'm quite aware that she did an awesome job. Anyway, enjoy today's episode on building for-profit businesses versus not-for-profit businesses with the brilliant Alain de Botton and Anne-Marie Huby of Just Giving. Good evening. Welcome to another Secret Leaders Live. My name is Rich Martel and I'm the producer of Secret Leaders. Um, unfortunately, our host, Dan Murray, who I'm sure many of you came here to see, uh, ended up in A&E last night until about 3am. Don't worry, he's okay. We have an awesome super sub who I'll be introducing in a minute. Um, tonight, we are joined by the wonderful founders of Just Giving and the School of Life. And tonight's topic is around social enterprise, building for profit companies for good, and the question of whether this does or doesn't make more of an impact on social society than charities. All that leaves me to do is to introduce, introduce our super sub host tonight. She has been described as a feisty, joyous force of nature. She co-founded Hassle.com and ambitiously built the company before selling it for 32 million euros. She is now working on her second startup, Resi, creating the largest architect's practice in the UK. Can we have a large round of applause for Alex De Pledge? Thank you. I come equipped with notes, so don't worry. I'm well briefed. Um, I'm going to try and do a good job tonight for Dan. Um, I can't believe he's trusted me. I feel like he's just handed me his newborn and said, please, look after them. Um, so it's really good to be here, and um, I'm really excited about tonight because these are two of my favourite people, and they've got a lot to say on a really important subject. So without further ado, I would like to welcome to stage um, Anne-Marie Huby of Just Giving. Um, if you could come up, Anne-Marie. <laughs> Hello. Hello. It's so good to see you. You look so well. Thank so you. So if you don't know, and I'm sure you do, um, Anne-Marie, you obviously built Just Giving in... Well, you pioneered the sector, really, for profit, for good, um, and executed it to a magnificent sale, scale before selling it. Um, so I guess what I'm wondering is, what were you doing before Just Giving? Can you just fill us in briefly? 
So I used to run the UK arm of Médecins Sans Frontières in the UK. And uh, yeah, so I, I have a foot in both worlds, both charities many years ago and, and then just giving when I met Zareen Karras, who's the co-founder. I didn't do it alone. <laughs> we never do. Yeah, quite. Um, well, actually, if, if you want to hear more about the Just Giving story, then um, you should listen to Anne-Marie's podcast, Secret Leaders. I have. It's fantastic. Um, and I understand from Dan that, weren't you, like, aren't you claustrophobic? And yes. he, like, locked you in like that. Yes. And I was in there as well. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a two-by-four, like, dungeon thing where you record this podcast, although I think... You guys might have matured on now to bigger and better. No, you're still in there. Amazing. So you're not going you back. You may want to move We're that not going on. We're for second round. <laughs> uh, so, Fab. Okay. Well, I'm going to move on now and welcome to the stage um, Alain de Botton. So I'm sure most of you know Alan. He's an author, philosopher, academic, and of course the founder of the School of Life. Um, so I just for some context um, before we get going, I just wondered um, how do you feel that being a writer or an academic set you up for entrepreneurship, or did it not? Um, it didn't at all, but I think it gave me interesting blind spots that I've tried to use. Um, I think when you're a writer, you focus very much on the end product, and you're mercifully. Um, protected from all the kind of sales, distribution, every, all the engine behind publishing is hidden from you. You're treated like a child um, and just left to get on with it. Um, and that's both a blessing and a curse. Um, I think it's a blessing in that when I set up the School of Life, I was ignorant of all sorts of complications, which enabled me to keep an eye on the sort of higher purpose. Um, I didn't really ask myself how are the bill's going to work out. Um, you, those of you in the room who've been in similar circumstances will know that there is always a crisis if um, an idiot like me gets in charge of a, <laughs> of a company. Um, and the way that that crisis is resolved either means that the company is closed down or that it goes on to bigger and better things. When it goes on to bigger and better things, there is always a partnership. Um, and fortunately, partners came along and uh, basically put me in a box and kept me there and saved the business. Um, <laughs> uh, but, it, but, but I'm the guardian of the business's mission, which is essentially to raise uh, levels of emotional intelligence in the name of a more fulfilled life. Most of our business is focused on the problems that people get into in relationships and the problems that people get into in the workplace. So on the podcast, I was talking a lot about these two books, which you can buy at the end. Uh, they are, they're called how to, how to Get On With Your Colleagues and How to Think More Effectively. It's essentially psychology of the, of the workplace. And this is something that I slowly got interested in because I realised there is, there is such correspondence between the problems in a couple and the problems in a business. That could sound weird. Do you know, but I, have, no, I, don't, I don't think I, I'm on that, not to advertise another podcast, but if anyone has got time, you should definitely check out Esther Perel's um, How's Work, which is very, it's this uh, relational um, dowered, uh, dowry that you take into work relationships. And I can absolutely relate to that. I mean, I often joke that I'm more married to my co-founder, Jules, than I am to my actual husband. And so. I mean, the, the added complication is, of course, that we tend to think in the workplace that we should be so-called professional. And of course, we should be, but we're, we're coming into the office carrying a lot of baggage, a lot of emotional baggage. And I think that a well-functioning office is able at least to name the area of our kind of psychological complexity so that we don't have to pretend that we're simpler than we are. Um, we do all have lots and lots of issues. And if we can find a diplomatic language, and diplomacy is really interesting and really valuable concept here, if we can find a diplomatic language in which to uh, touch 
you know, lightly but fruitfully on psychological issues, we'll have happier workplaces. So do you think it's OK to cry in the workplace? Because I do quite a lot of that. Um, <laughs> I, think, I, think it's, I think it's very important for bosses to cry. For those at the top to cry, I think. I think. That would the, be me. I think the whole thing is, it's yes. So in answer, yes. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think it actually, it's really it's got to come from the top. The admission of fragility and vulnerability and psychological baggage has to come from the top. Yeah. Um, and if it's done that way, you know, there should be a sign over most offices going, everyone's here's crazy. And, you know, the boss should wear a T-shirt going, everyone here's crazy. Not I'm crazy or you're crazy, but we are yeah. It's a very important we, because only with the concept of a we do people get undefensive about their fragilities, frailties and errors. And defensiveness, I mean, we've studied this a lot at the School of Life, and defensiveness is the number one problem in offices. Yeah. And, and behind defensiveness is a misplaced notion of perfectionism, which leads people to deny their mistakes when they crop up and they become aggressive rather than take stock yeah. and acknowledge errors. And it's, you know, it drives everybody mad, including the person who is themselves in the grip of a defensive structure. It's, it's like many things, it's down to childhood. Um, when you have a defensive person on the surface, you're saying, could you change paragraph three? They're hearing, you don't deserve to exist. I'd prefer your sister. Um, <laughs> and, and it's really important to get the inner story out and so that the person's actually hearing you and not yeah. their inner story. So, so I have to ask, because yep. you, you, you're talking about the workplace and vulnerabilities and fragility and all of those things. So you went from being a writer, yep. like academic, which is a relatively lonely profession. At least I was very lonely when I was at university. Yeah. Um, into a workplace where you have to collaborate and you're part of a team. So what learnings about yourself um, did you come I think across? The, the number one learning is that you have to be a teacher. Um, all of us uh, in business are teachers, whether we like the word teaching or not, that's what we do. And teaching is really the skill, the art of getting an idea that's in the recesses of your mind into the recesses of somebody else's mind through the very, very cumbersome medium of language um, that has to be delivered at the right pace, with the right level of humour, relaxedness, and at the right moment. These are very, very difficult skills. No one teaches us them, of course. All the important things are not taught. That's why we set up the School of Life. Um, none of the important things are taught. But um, we, you know, the number one mistake that we make in relation to this teaching task is to assume that an idea that's vivid in our mind will, for that matter, be vivid in somebody else's mind. And there's no more common sight than people thinking, I can't believe that someone doesn't know something that you've never bothered to tell them. Um, and so there's a lot of sulking that goes on. And sulking is the assumption that, you know, another person should know, and that's why you're not going to tell them, because they should know. And you feel so self-righteous that they should know, and yet don't, that you don't bother to teach them. So anyway, teaching is a really vital task. That's it's a good point. Um, we call it coaching, so I guess it's something similar. Um, so actually, really excitingly, if you want to hear more about Alan's story and the School of Life and all of the other things he's done, that podcast is actually out today. Big news. Um, so let's get on to what we came to talk about, which is for profit, for good. Um, so I wanted to kind of open up um, with a bit... Well, there's a bit of my own judgment in there, which is, like when I'm often talked about this, because we have a foundation at Resi that does um, pro bono work for architecture, people kind of look at me a little bit sceptical, like, you know, what's the motivations, you know? You can't really earn a profit and do good at the same time. So I guess, you know, Anne-Marie, first to you, like, why is building a for-profit company better for society than building a charity? 
Well, I'm not entirely... I'm less and less definite about the... Uh, that, or I have less and less of a definite answer to it. But what I do think is, uh, is true, or I hold to be true, is that charities don't have the monopoly on doing good. I think uh, even though when, as you said, you, we were among a number of... of, of uh, just giving, we were among a, a number of companies with an overt social mission and we encountered incredible hostility, actually, at times, uh, including some sections of the British press who do that very well. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the, the one thing that I'm rather proud of is that we sort of began to blur the, the distinction. I think, you know, when you think of the size of the charity sector, to be really analytical about it, you, you think of the size of the charity sector, which in, in this country is kind of commendably big, but you look at the wider, uh, the size of the overall economy, it stands to reason that if we do want to live in a more fulfilling, um, equal, uh, you know, sort of decent society, we're going to have to attend to what companies do. Um, but also, just at a micro level, in my own experience, I do think that it is, um, you know, uh, I hope that we are just giving by, by taking the knocks, you know, by being criticized for doing something good and doing it for profit. We proved that it, there was appetite among investors for investing in companies that don't just put the, the profit motive or the growth motive first. And that if that becomes more normal, and it is now, particularly as a result of the sort of uh, the changes in uh, or the, the much greater awareness around climate, um, you know, we are, I think, on the cusp of a, of a redistribution, a reorientation of capital, which where, where the, the expectation will become the norm that companies no longer can, if they in their spare time, consider the, their impact, but that will be part of a, a central part of what they are. Yeah, so I guess kind of at a high level, it's not just about returning... Your job as a company is not just about returning That's to right. shareholder. It's a bit greater than that, I Much guess. Much greater than that, yes. I mean, Alan, what's your perspective? Um, look, if you look at it philosophically, why... So if we're, if we're imagining there's good capitalism and bad capitalism, good capitalism sells people things they really need, uh, and that they can use to thrive, and bad capitalism sells things that they don't need. So it's, you know, McDonald's versus... Well, yeah, old McDonald's, certainly. Uh, old McDonald's versus, it's you know, Leon or something, right? Um, so why is this even possible? Why is it possible to have good and bad capitalism? Largely because the human animal is very uncertain about what will make them thrive. We are subject to enormous short-term appetites that are often not connected up with our long-term thriving. So if we really knew our hearts and knew what was good for us, um, all sweet manufacturers would go out of business and all fruit distributors would be thriving. Um, that's not the case because faced with a choice between a Mars bar and some pomegranate, um, we've got a conflict in our minds. And um, so what, what do we do with this? So one view is ban Mars bars. So impose, um, you know, government legislation which will stop bad capitalism from acting on our short-term desires. Um, the other kind is, you know, tax Mars bars, etc. Um, I'm, I'm a capitalist in believing that ultimately um, all businesses are in the job of seduction. A business that wants to achieve good and make money has a double role that a business that merely wants to uh, make money 
uh, has only a single mission. So it's much, much harder to be a so-called good capitalist because you're trying to hit two targets. So you're going to have to be much more ingenious because you're not just saying, I want to make a snack that will sell, sell things and, and make me a profit. You say, I want to make a snack that will sell, make me profit and be good for the customer. So you've got to work doubly hard. Um, and, and it's literally, you have to be more creative, more inventive, etc. You have to understand your customer's resistance. You have to learn the art of, of seduction and charm um, with a product that, that you know, it, it's, it's like the difference between being a parent who's trying to interest their kid in a museum and being a parent who's trying to interest their kid in paintballing. It just requires more skill. You could do it, but it's going to require kind of more skill. Um, but I think that's, you know, that should be a glamorous ambition. And people who've been able to hit the two targets should be given lots of gongs and lots of public recognition um, uh, in order to motivate other people to come forward. I mean, the search for respect is a huge driver in business. And so the way that we allocate respect in society um, is going to have a big role to play in the sort of capitalism we get. Yeah. So have you got an MP? I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm Me? just. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got two candidates here for a gong. I'm not going to. Do you have? I mean, in, in our travels, uh, I'm just giving it through the the objections, the field of objections yeah. that people threw at us. Um, I, you know, I, I ended up talking to an academic called uh, Nicola Raihani, who's a behavioural economist, whom you might have come across, and she was, and she quoted some hard science, um, social science, that that suggested that when a company had a for good purpose or, or, or tried to do something good, the level of cynicism among the, the, the people looking upon it was much greater. And I thought that was kind of intriguing. I was just wondering whether you had come across this whole paradox. You know, on the one hand, people say, I wish that business was better. Well, but when I, they encounter from, one that tries a, to... That's really interesting. Yeah. From a psychoanalytic background, I'm very indebted to psychoanalysis, this is clearly envy at the fear that actually good capitalism works. So if you've been wasting your life in a kind of capitalism, if you've been working at the Daily Mail and you've been selling your soul and things are not <laughs> been going that well for you, and along yep. comes Just Giving and manages to make a profit doing good, this is so humiliating that there's only one answer, that your life has been ruined or you're going to try and ruin somebody else's life. You have uh, made me very happy. So <laughs> I always try and please. <laughs> So it's just monstrous envy and inadequacy Wonderful. and fear, fear. but we, for which we have to be very generous and, and sympathetic. I mean, it's not, it's not fun. Oh, so, so I have to be sympathetic? Absolutely. Oh, right. okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I, the other thing that often gets levelled, um, the, the idea that you can do good and make money, is that it's a very middle-class way of running a business and, like, that's, you know, not how the other half live, or at least that, that seems to be the kind of... That's how the naysayers sort of sweep it under the carpet, is that, like, you know, I get a bit... And it comes from that place of fear and kind of, well, if there is another way, then we all have to move over to this other way of doing it. But I definitely, at least in my experience, with the people that work for me, that's people are looking for those businesses that are doing good. Um, I mean, I think, I think we're just at the beginning of, of capitalism. When you think of, you know, think of Abraham Maslow's pyramid of needs, and he, you know, he's just trying to describe what human beings need, and down at the bottom are needs for transport and shelter and telecommunications. And once you get to the top, it's need for self-expression, connection, creativity, etc. If you try to map the FTSE 100 or just UK business onto that pyramid, almost all business activity is still down at the bottom. In one way or another, most businesses are in business of transporting, sheltering, communicating, but not the higher needs. So there's an enormous opportunity to move capitalism up that pyramid and start making money not just from 
our basic material needs, but from our more advanced psychological needs. Dare I mention Facebook? Facebook is the only you know, multi-billion dollar company that's actually, for all its faults, and it's got many, um, uh, is actually involved in the top of that pyramid. It's actually making big money off the desire for connection. Just giving, very amazing company, because it's also making money off something you know, pretty near the top of that pyramid. Mm -hmm. And that's very rare. So, so one way to look at it is not just, is it charitable, is it not charitable, but where on that Maslow pyramid is your business pegged? And I think there's, I mean, if people are feeling entrepreneurial and thinking, where's a good business idea? Just look at that pyramid and see where your company could, could be on it. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secret leaders. That's V-A-N-T-A.com slash secret leaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. I just have to ask this, it's going slightly off topic, but is, would this be almost kind of your answer to the question of like, where is the economy going to evolve? Because there's a big question out there, isn't there? Like, well, if people don't need to work as much, is it universal basic income? The, the robots are coming, AI is going to do away with all these, these kind of, um, you know, simpler jobs. And it's actually much more about the kind of more intellectually complex and yeah. emotional jobs. Is that, would you say that that would be I one mean, of your answers? Th there's a real anxiety that capitalism might have sort of exhausted itself and that we've got enough cars and fridges and therefore, you know, the robots are going to do the rest and what are we all going to do? Um, to see how much capitalism has still got to do, just imagine an average day and try and think of where business is fulfilling your needs and where there are gaps. So you come down in the morning, you open your kitchen uh, cupboard, you're looking to have some cereal and there are 23 
packets of cereal competing for your attention. So no one should go into the cereal business because that's a saturated market. We have enough cereal. But then you'll sit down with your kids or your spouse and maybe there's a strange atmosphere. And is there someone to call about strange atmospheres with your spouse? No, not yet. Maybe the school of life, but not yet. Not, there's not billion dollar well-branded company that deals with domestic strife yet. But there is, so that's a company, that's a billion, trillion dollar company waiting to be discovered. It, so just think of the things that are giving you unhappiness in the course of an average day. And um, every time you get to a problem, you've got a business and there's no business to feed it. That's a business, right? So our job, we, we've got a lot to do. You've got a lot to do. <laughs> Can you start some new, new just I, giving? But I fear slightly this idea, you know, if you, if you use that pyramid of needs, it means that only the good businesses are those that gravitate to the top. I mean, I think there's something, and, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm really skeptical of those distinctions. I think we are all here. We can spare the time to come here because people look in this room pretty well fed, you know, fully clothed and everything else. I mean, you know, we're not going to run out of, of stuff to need. And, and I think the question will be much more about, you know, what are all the companies that furnish us with all these necessities or things that we deem to be necessities? How are they behaving? You know, and, and what does good or better look like? I mean, you're in the business, Alex, of you know, in, enhancing people's homes. Arguably, most of your customers don't need that extension, but you, you know, but you will want to build it. They, they'll want it built in a way that will make their, their, their homes more insula better insulated, more you know, whatever the needs are. But our needs, we're never going to run out of needs. Um, so, so the, the thing that sort of troubles me is this idea that, you know, there are some companies that are almost fortunate or el elite enough to be, to, be, uh, in, in, to be able to consider their impact, and then there's the rest of the economy. Why, why does that make you uncomfortable? Because isn't that the case? Not at the level of what the company is doing, because I agree with you, it can be a company that's doing anything, you know, not just delivering psychotherapy, it could be a company that's making, uh, you know, chairs or yes. whatever, anything, mm -hmm. a very basic thing that you need. But, but isn't every company making anything, whatever it be, isn't that company always facing a choice about whether to be a good capitalist or a bad capitalist? Yes. Isn't that a choice facing every company? No, that's right. And in right. a way that we, co we come full circle, yes. Right. I think, you, you know, there are trade-offs to be so, made. So, you, so, for example, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I remember vividly some, some commercial uh, trade-offs we had to make. If, if we wanted to sort of, you know, treat our customers better from an economic point of view, we would postpone the moment when we were becoming profitable. Or yeah. we were, for example, walking away from, from projects because we, we knew we wouldn't be doing a good job. Mm. Actually, we were given a very hard time sometimes at board mm. meetings for missing our quarter. Right. And, and I think it's important to talk about those trade-offs because it is not easy necessarily. Mm. Uh, doing good at times will be very hard to reconcile with commercial success. And those are the real, real sort of, you know, tensions and struggles and difficulties. And I think we should talk more about them. Mm. No, I completely agree. And I think one of the hardest things, like, for, for me at that level, as I'm sure it was for you when you were uh, just giving, is that people can buy into this idea of doing good in the beginning. So, you, you know, you lay out this vision and we're going to create this wonderful company and treat our employees really well and we'll do, we'll have a foundation on the side with all this stuff. And then when the cold light of day and the crunch comes and it's, you know, you're not meeting your targets, also people have this uncanny ability to switch and suddenly the mission's not that important as it is missing the revenue target. So you are right, it's an incredibly difficult balance. So just on that, 
in order to move it on, otherwise I'll get in trouble by Dan, who's probably like got spies everywhere. Um, <laughs> what, do you, what do you see as the core issues with building charities? So some of the inefficiencies or personal experiences or insights that um, you've studied or kind of been a part of, um, you know, and it's kind of pushed you more on the for-profit. I don't know if you want to start. Um, do you, you have more direct experience? Um, I, as I said, I think... Um, well, okay, so, so, so charities don't have a monopoly on, on, on doing good, but I, I just before I, I'm about to be really critical of them, I also wanted to say, we, you know, I personally worked with incredible people who devoted themselves to doing amazing things through charities and often succeeded in doing that. Um, and, um, and fundamentally, there's nothing profoundly wrong with the charity model, just to be clear. But I think there are, um, you know, as I, as I said at the start, I, I had a foot in the charity world and then I moved into a business environment. And I think on balance, I got increasingly frustrated by the way that charities are, are, are structured and run. Um, so just to, to sort of uh, to, to go down to, to practicalities, you know, I was um, even on my board without naming names, but the board of Mesa Saint Frontier years ago, we had really incredibly sharp people who had joined the board who came from business and and, and the media and, and 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 really very sort of people of good judgment in their professional lives. But when they came to the charity and they sat on the board and they were trustees, it's almost as if they were leaving their judgment and their critical faculties at the door. And I often said, guys, just come on, give me some challenge. And um, they were saying, oh, you know, it's so good what you're doing. And I think <laughs> it's, it's, a real, it's a real problem so in, the in charities. The is just not there and, in a way it is in the private so sector. It's a kind of silly way of illustrating, I think, the account Accountability of in charity, the accountability principle in charities is weak. I know it's you know if there are charity types in the room, you might disagree, and you know it's open to scrutiny. But but in my experience, it was frustratingly lacking in rigor, and uh, and and I think by extension, therefore, charities are relatively. There are many exceptions, but in my experience, are relatively sort of uh, weak-willed when it comes to making difficult decisions. And ultimately, when you compare that to a business, which is you know, like a heat-seeking missile, is, 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 is seeking impact, right? What is every penny? You know, where should, how should we allocate capital? Why? Really scrutinize these things. And as a machine for allocating capital, there's just no comparison. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would totally agree that in the end, um, human beings don't like to think very much. And um, when money is the guiding principle, it forces thought. I mean, what we call efficiency is really extra thought, to, you know, deployed in relation to certain questions. And without that, people are inclined to think, well, I'm doing good, so I don't have to worry about this, that, and the other. And so there's an enormous waste of, of resources. So money is the great discipliner. Um, and I think that it's far better to hold everybody in, a, in an organization tightly to some financial targets and you know, then distribute any profit that's made in an enlightened way than to throw away those quite tight targets uh, and end up with chaos. Because, I mean, in the early days of the School of Life, because we were in a sector where many charities operated, people who came to work for us um, imagined that, that we were a charity, even though we told them we weren't. It took them a really long time. Um, now, whenever we hire somebody, we tell them we are a profit-making company. And after a little bit of a surprise, it works beautifully. Um, people actually like targets. Um, if a company says, 
your primary goal is to do good, what do you do with that? It's much better to go, you've got to hit this number and here are the tools to do it. That's actually much kinder. Everybody knows what they're doing. Everybody's singing from the same hymn sheet. So I think um, I've grown properly allergic to some of what happens when a work, really at the level, not the level of the mission of the organization, but the level of um, working patterns and working disciplines. There's serious chaos, I think, when people imagine that um, the charitable end justifies all sorts of means that are not very um, uh, careful with resources. So I think you're both saying the same thing. And, and actually, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, well, actually, you know, if I think about the rigor that's applied on boards in private companies, I actually don't think it's that tough either. Um, I don't think that non-exec non directors are, are doing that great of a Depends job. Depends how large the company is. I mean, the larger it is and the, the fatter the thing, often the less rigor there is. Well, I mean, the, 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 best, the best run businesses are very tightly run small businesses that don't have much margin to play with. They're really watching things. I also think I'm publicly listed because yep. the analysts go after them and then and therefore there's a lot more scrutiny, a lot more rigor. So, And I think this is one that I'm right. I, I feel like, and not to get political, but I feel like we're, we are in a, in a period of time where liberalism feels like it's failed a little bit and um, people are a bit unsure of strategy, vision, and where we should go. And there's a, there is a lot of noise around capitalism doesn't work anymore. So I guess my question in that context is, like, how can we make capitalism work again? What changes can we make to the way that we do business or that we do charitable work or what, however it might be to, to get to, to recapture that belief that we've got a system that works for everybody? Wow, that's a big question. Um, I made that one up on the spot. So I think it, what's important to remember, what I find frustration, frustrating is how incredibly binary we've all become collectively. So capitalism has you know, created winners and losers, and, 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 and things like Brexit illustrate the, 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 the level of anguish that people have experienced around these things. But it doesn't mean that the, the system is fundamentally broken. I mean, if you travel the world, you go to my, my brother lives in Africa, you know, the people who live with him or around him in Dakar, they're, you know, they want to get on, they want to own a taxi, they want to, you know, they want to participate in capitalism by any, you know, under any other name. And so in the vast, you know, the vast majority of people in the world consider, if you, if you wrote the definition of capitalism and put it in front of them, they would say, yeah, that's what I want, I want a slice of that. So I think we shouldn't forget that we've been incredibly lucky Right. So in absolute terms, you know, even when I think of my parents, how the, the depth of poverty, particularly that my father experienced, and that in the space of one generation, what we've achieved, that's amazing. And I think we have to rem remind ourselves of that. I think the thing that, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm always very shy of grand schemes. I think this whole question, the premise of this evening is, you know, can you know, businesses, I'm ch changing the questions a little bit, but can businesses play a role in doing, having a, a positive impact on society? Yes. We don't need to take the barricades and change capitalism. The, capitalism is an incredible um, engine of progress, and we are part of it. Maybe I'm an optimist, but I just... Oh, I, I totally agree. I mean, just, just to add, maybe you were getting onto this, but I think that capitalists are generally very competitive people. And the clues in the name, the thing that capitalists compete over is the amount of capital that they are able to accrue. Um, so you get the spectacle of 
people at uh, Davos or Sun Valley gathering, and everybody there could feed you know, themselves and their families for 22 generations or 1,000 generations, but they're still going to the office every day. What are they doing it for? They're not doing it for capital. They're doing it for honour, for respect. And I think that it's worth locking onto this question of motivation, because if we tweak how capitalism operates, I think we also have to tweak the reward system. So up till now, the standard reward for a so-called you know, efficient capitalist has been how, how much you sell your company for. Um, that's the only criteria. And then somewhere in the distance, we've got this thing called the honours system, you know, joking about MBEs. Now, I think that a functioning society would really get quite interested in people's motivations and capitalist motivations and go, if we are, for example, to accept a slightly lesser share of profit in exchange for a greater share of social good, a well-functioning system recognises that that hit should lead to something else being given to the person who's done that. Um, and I think that thing should be called honour or respect of, of society, and because that's such a powerful driver. We are creatures who want to be loved. We want to be loved personally, romantically, and we want to be loved by strangers. Um, in capitalism, you are loved for accruing capital. Um, if we're to tweak capitalism, we have to give people something else that they might be loved for. And I think that we could call that respect or honour in relation to the higher goals of business. I, I obviously see a lot of other entrepreneurs, and, and I know that, like, so, so many of us want to do social enterprise. Like, we want to do good. Um, but raising money, even though it's now possible, it's still really hard. And so I'm, I'm curious as to what you both think this kind of secret is into to kind of, you know, selling people on the idea that they might get a little bit less share of capital, but actually it's a worthwhile investment. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that that landscape is changing. I mean, in the in the past, recent past, uh, from experience, if you if you pitched your company to investors on a kind of social or, or, or impact level, they expected a lower. So the trade-off for them was they would get a lower return. Uh, but I hear this is not my field. I mean, but but I have friends in the impact world, and they. Um, I think that narrative is changing, partly because those that are particularly in relation to the climate, those that will be early and therefore will, will, will kind of um, capture a much greater share of the market in, in those exciting sort of climate protective or green initiatives, will actually carry a premium potentially. Um, so I think what, what I think is interesting is that those, those distinctions are becoming less, less obvious. So am I right in quoting that I think you raised just four million for That's right for just, just giving, giving yeah which is insane considering yeah. what you did with that four million and was that just a straight up investment then there was no, it wasn't impact investing it was no. just equity no. yeah yeah. That's pretty, that for me. That's pretty incredible. Well, one that you did so much with it, but number two that like you were able to attract 
um, that level of investment. Who was it from, can we ask? It was uh, from a, an entrepreneur called Bela Hadvani. So, so one person? A one person and his family, but it was one person. Highly unusual. I, w I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call that. You know, there are no lessons to be learned. <laughs> he's, he's very much a sort of one-off person who, you know, very single-minded and wanted to, I mean, blissfully gave us enough capital, more than we'd asked for, to sort of say, you just need your head out of this financing charade. You just need and can to I be and very indiscreet and ask what happened to his four million? Or did he walk away with it at the end? Oh, oh uh, close to. Hang on, let me do the maths. Uh, it's going to make everyone feel inadequate. In yes, about 30x, something like right. that. Yeah. Oof. No, wow. my okay. maths is ridiculous. Um, but yes. And so, and how about yourself, Alan? How's the school? How did you finance the school? Because you said you put yourself in a box, which I know that my co-founder would love to do with me. Yeah. Um, so, like, what? How yeah, did I mean, look, uh, yeah, you finance? I mean, um, well, we just got uh, friends and family. I mean, it didn't require. You know, we don't have any plant or anything, so it's a, it's a relatively simple thing. Um, but I think you know to answer the, the, the question about um, how do you motivate investors? I mean, it's, it's a paradox, isn't it, that you've got people who might give something um, you know, totally charitably expecting nothing back, um, who are then haggling over what they might get in an investment. Um, and I think that just shows the complexities of human psychology. Mm. Um, you know, that, that people, I mean, it's like someone you know, getting in a fight over a tip um, you know, for a few pounds, but then giving you know, a museum wing just to somebody else. And it's the same person who's got the same resources, but in one area, they're incredibly mean, and in another, they're incredibly generous. It all depends how you're framing it. And I think that's, you know, the more we can sort of frame a vision of capitalism that is appealing to all the things, all the buttons you've got to press, which includes vanity, um, why not? You know, um, uh, then, then we'll be finding that investors will take the plunge. And, and, you know, these are the people who might have given it free to a donkey, who, you know, to, to donkey charity, uh, but, but, you know, having fun investing in a tech startup um, where the risk might be very, very high. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to audience participation, yeah. I'm hoping that you have, yes, you have questions, because it's always like a sign of if it's gone well or not, as if people have questions. So the more questions, the more I take that this has gone well. Thank you. Thank, thank you for um, that was really interesting. Um, my question is about what you're saying about motivations to do good or motivations to donate. Um, as we see the kind of trend maybe for social good increasing over time, hopefully, do you think that that might lead to a kind of privatization of social good and where it's take, the burden is taken away from governments to provide certain um, facilities and it might actually fall to the individual person? Do you want to take that? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> so uh, I think that's a really good, um, it's, it's a good question and I think it's a genuine concern. I mean, I, having said all I've said about uh, the fact that businesses, you know, can and, and should do as much as they can to, uh, to move the needle on the sort of big societal issues, I think that, uh, you know, I think the idea that, that government has managed to be, or, or the state, has been depicted as almost a malevolent, is that the right word, sort of force in societies is, is kind of dangerous. Um, I think as business leaders, we have to remind ourselves just how many of the sort of fundamental infrastructure, aspects of infrastructure of, uh, of society that we, we take for granted. The internet, you know, free, uh, in the UK, free um, 
healthcare, you know, a, a, a well-educated population we can recruit brilliant people from. All of those are social goods paid for and enabled by the state. And there will probably be aspects of, even though you know, think parts of the NHS seem to be, uh, you know, sort of uh, looked at uh, avidly by some capitalists. I think there might be aspects of, of, of the healthcare system in this country that should not go into private hands. And, and I think we need to be less binary about these things. So I would share that concern. And I think we have to, you know, companies need to also remember all that, all the, the, the extraordinary gifts that are, that they take for granted in order to operate. Mm. I, I'd, I'd agree with that. And I think, you know, we're operating in Europe, which is philosophically, you know, has hit a really wise balance between um, the state and private enterprise. Um, it may not always get it right in every country at all points, but stepping back, it's a very ideal balance um, between these two very different kind of competing forces. And I think that, um, you know, the way the world is, uh, this is going to remain the most compelling model. Um, and, um, uh, you know, if you look at either, either extreme towards a much more statist model, or towards a much more deregulated model, problems soon start to emerge on either side of the spectrum. So um, I think I'm speaking to a fellow centrist, and I think it's time for, uh, especially now, for centrists and um, nostalgic Blairites to feel <laughs> very, very... I hope I can lump you in there. Um, uh, to feel very, very you know, positive about sitting in the middle um, of, uh, of the spectrum between... Um, uh, unregulated capitalism on the one hand and um, socialism or communism on the other. Uh, it is a, there's a beautiful spot that is as wise as it is effective. So three centrists in a row up here. <laughs> um, oh, you've got the mic. Yes. So you talked about uh, the fact that the, the companies that want to do good have to work doubly hard. And do they have to work doubly hard or is this essentially the... the the, the demands of the consumer is changing with the changing uh, generations. And basically, this is not necessarily an option anymore, that they will have to have purpose and they will have to do good in order to grow with the coming uh, shift in the consumer demographics. I think, I think there's another thing, which is, you know, talking about the, the sort of double targets, I think that... Um, Good businesses have to execute well, but before you execute, you're executing on an idea. There's the design of an idea. And I think the design of that idea has to involve creativity and a serious amount of good psychology. Um, most businesses that are successful have understood something about the world that others haven't understood. They've understood their customers, their prospective customers, the, a problem that they have with a kind of genius insight. So... You know, something like Just Giving isn't, isn't just a company that kind of had a good product. You know, we, we, we can somehow miss the pure creativity. As I wrote this book called How to Think More Effectively, I'm peddling this idea that thinking is at the heart of good business. And we hear so much about execution and so little about the stage prior to that. Now, I don't know how the idea came to you, but I imagine that that idea came to you, you know, in a way that's comparable to a poem appearing to an artist or a painting or a sculpture, that these are all moments of inspiration where you are taking a leap of the imagination to think, how can something that I see in my eyes um, fit into the life of somebody else? What am I seeing? What kind of you know, gap do I see in somebody else's life? And, and that's a work of high-level creativity in psychology. And I think that 
good, capitalist, good capitalism is going to demand more of that sort of thinking. Um, because if you've got a leaden idea, however well you execute and however noble your principles are, you're not really going to get anywhere because you're lacking um, an insight, a proper active insight into the people you're trying to reach. So, so I think, I think you know, too often this debate is seen as like, what's the profit level by which the company is targeting? You know, before we're discussing a kind of profit level, let's try and work out how good is the idea, how creative and imaginative and psychologically rich is the idea that's guiding a company? How did you, how did you come up with Just Giving? I mean, what, did As the thought, you were did the saying thought? that, I was thinking poetry, <laughs> boy, oh boy. <laughs> well, don't um, be modest. I mean, maybe. Well, no, no. I mean, it, it's first, as you said yourself at the start. You know, you do you start something, and then you realise well into it what you've taken on. But at first, you think, well, nobody seems to be doing this, so it needs to exist, or it, and, and of course, the it develops and changes and morphs. Um, but just to go back to what you were saying, I think what's really important to remember is that even, you know, the rail barons, you know, um, the, uh, you know the, the people who later on in the development of their companies became really bad guys, you know, they too were early stage entrepreneurs and they too had a dream and they, they I'm sure, I, I haven't researched this, I'm really kind of shooting from the hip, but, you know, I'm pretty sure that the guys who built the railways across the United States, just they weren't thinking we're going to be exploitative capitalists and be, be real bastards. They had a, a dream that they would connect the, this extraordinary place and make people and capital and ideas circulate across the continent. I think I'm telling that story because that, or, or the story I think is true. <laughs> because, because I think it's helpful to sort of say, Every business is at first fledgling and small and full of dreams. And then it's when you practice it that the sin begins to creep in and the difficulties of re reconciling your original, often rather beautiful idea and the reality of making money. And I think, and I'm not suggesting that we should develop a, um, almost like a tenderness for bastard capitalism but 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 you know that there is it's a human adventure right so nobody leaves their well-paid job or whatever to go and create a company and work so hard at it because they just want to be average they want to change the world there's there was a guy no i'm sorry there's a guy right at the back who has it forever i've got the microphone so there's nothing you can do sorry <laughs> uh, look very very quickly um i'm interested in the dynamic how where, where is this positive you know, altruistic capitalism going to come from, the individual or the organisation? Because through a sort of all organisational psychology lens, they're always debating whether it's about the individual and their self-identification and their ability to turn their own personal purpose into something meaningful at work. Or is it better that, like Unilever, you mandate it from the top and say, we're going to make a positive impact on the uh, SDGs over the next five years. How, how might it best be accelerated this, I wonder? I mean, I, having, having said about, you know, wax lyrical earlier about how we can all do things individually, it has its limits. I mean, I think there is, it's not either or. And, uh, but under, you know, if you really consider the timelines around climate, for example, which is probably the, the first thing that comes to mind uh, against your question, it, it, it will be, a, it has to be a, a mixture of much bigger levers than our own individual um, sort of agency. And 
you know, we've, we haven't talked about regulation. It's probably not the sort of uh, debate we want to have. But, you know, even if you remember a few years ago when recycling was the, the extent of people's thinking around the environment, um, there was, uh, I, I remember, while speaking to a number of um, uh, supermarket senior people, and they said you know, the, the one thing that would change the, the needle on plastic is regulation. Because none of us can go first. Their margins are so small. They, they, none of them could really change it. If a government, and after all, this is a very low effort, right? If a, if, if a law was passed in parliament, and, and the whole of the retail industry or food retail industry was given two, three years, whatever it is, to eliminate a certain type of plastic, it would happen like that. Because everybody would be, that would be the level and playing field. the prices field. would go up, which is and why the government don't do it. Yeah. yeah. But we mustn't Dirty forget hands. that government has enormous yeah. power for good. No, I, I completely agree. I think that no one's willing to expend their political yeah. capital yeah. at the moment for probably good reasons, given the last three years. If you're fed up of scrolling through jobs on LinkedIn, I think you're going to love Otter. They've handpicked the most exciting jobs at tech companies hiring in London. Many of the fantastic companies featured on Secret Leaders have job openings right now on Otter, such as Slack, Bulb, GoCardless and Deliveroo. Otter is building a place for smart, ambitious people to find their new career challenge. Find out more on otter.com. That's O-T-T-A dot com. Anne-Marie, if I'm the CEO of a fossil fuel company that's suppressed science and funded lobbyists against climate change, how much of my salary do I have to give away to make it all OK? And, <laughs> Alain, if we give Jeff Bezos of Amazon a statue and a, and a knighthood, will he pay his tax? That's a really good point. I, I mean, by the way, I, I uh, being in, in favour of supporting the idea of... Uh, uh, the, the, the effective altruism, is that what you called it earlier, doesn't mean that I'm, I'm in support, I, I, I venerate um, business leaders or believe that their level of pay and reward is fair. And I would certainly, I, I personally have never, you know, just for the record, I've never optimised my tax position. I believe all of that is actually amoral. Mm -hmm. um, so... I, I'm probably in your camp when it comes to how we treat culturally captains of industry. I think that there's a reverence afforded to them, which I think is corrosive. I don't think that's good. Uh, I'd rather there were lots of smaller companies rather than over overarching, over-powerful ones. I don't know how to, they ought to be regulated or broken up. I have no idea. I'm not, a, I'm not an expert at that. But so, you know, one can be or I can be, uh, I think it's possible to sort of have um, sympathy for the, the effect, effective altruism idea and at the same time find some of the way that, you know, the economy works globally obscene. I think the two are not mutually exclusive. To answer your Jeff Bezos question, Jeff Bezos does not want more money. Um, he is simply uh, in search of money because money is the route to what he really wants, which is honour. He is driven by vanity. It's obvious the man's driven by vanity because human beings are. I mean, the inventor of the, you know, the key theorist of capitalism, Adam Smith, wrote a second book, aside from The Wealth of Nations, The Theory of Moral Sentiment. And in The Theory of Moral Sentiments, vanity is given a leading role. That's how people operate. Um, and the, a, a, a well-run um, society is one, and this is all 18th century British moralists tag onto this, 
a well-run society harnesses people's selfish vanity for socially beneficial ends. It was made complete sense in, you know, 1780, and it makes complete sense now. So what we need to do is to make sure that the neediest, most emotionally hungry, inadequate, uh, ambitious, desperate human beings, who are the ones who work hard and fight hard, that these people will be given the right gongs for doing the right things. At the moment, they're sort of given the right gongs, but not quite. So we need to tweak it. The honor system is totally inadequate. It's unreliable. You know, if you, if you were trying to be a property developer and either you were going to build fantastic developments that would really be places and genuinely enhance their environments, or you're going to try and maximize your profit in a certain way and not care at all what the buildings looks like. Um, if you're weighing out, okay, what, how do I play this? I could become Sir something or something, um, or Lady something or whatever, um, but, you know, the chances are, you know, they're going to miss me, so I better go for the cash. It's a rational choice currently to go for the cash, always. Um, and we need to change that. So I think we need to change the honour system by having a very clear-eyed view of the motivations of those who fight hardest to make it in modern business. We've probably got time for a couple, couple two, more, two, more two or three. Um, so one interesting thing about the nonprofit sector is that they've evolved over time due to externalities um, between the for-profit and the public sector um, rather than um, capitalism, which was created. Um, and something else that's interesting is that there's the very strong presence of moral judgments in the charity sector, um, among them the feeling that charity staff should be earning little money below some ceiling that's arbitrary, accepting the support of unskilled volunteers, um, not paying their boards any money, to your point, um, having low admin costs. But then they're also told that they're being inefficient um, relative to the for-profit sector. So I was hoping you could speak to those moral judgments and what could be called double standards. How can we reduce the moral judgments, the double standards, and is there space for both the for-profit and the non-profit sectors instead of it being an or? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I, I really don't have a, a brilliant idea about how to solve that, um, that particular very acute problem. I mean, I think you touch on, um, in your question, you touch on something that I think is sort of particularly poignant in the, what I would call the predicament of charities. So as you say, you know, funders, corporate donors, etc., expect charities to run really lean um, but running really, really lean, it creates a talent problem. I mean, as, as I said, there are absolutely brilliant people who have taken enormous uh, salary sacrifices to work in charities. But I find that it sits really uneasily with me. You know, why should people who would make a fortune in whatever, you know, consulting, banking and everything, and they choose to do something really good that we all benefit from, you know, as a society, and they get really poorly paid. I find that really, really wrong. So I, I don't have an answer to how we could bridge that, but I often think that charity leaders themselves and trustees are not robust enough. They know this to be true. I have uh, countless conversations with people where I said, okay, so if you really want a great fundraising director, would you be prepared to pay them well? Because you know you would bring a brilliant person to your charity, you would you know you would raise so much more money, and then you know the, you'd move the conversation on, and this was taboo. So you know people who earn six-figure salaries in consulting sit on the charity board and, pre and 
depress that charity's ability to pay its people, I find that really quite wrong. So I think the charities, the CEOs perhaps, starting with them, ought to have that discussion with their supporters, their funders, and the people who commission their work and say, we're going to start paying our people right so that we can attract talent. And then, maybe I'm being naive, but I think that is, that is deeply wrong. Uh, last question then. So we always talk about capitalists and kind of capitalism as this homogenous unit of leaders, but it's, it's always a blend of, at least in first generation companies, founders and investors. And I seldom, I know a lot of founders and I seldom meet founders who pr care primarily about money and who actually care about money to that great an extent. I far more rarely meet investors who don't care primarily about money. As an investor, your primary interest in the company, your primary engagement in the company is through the return that the company gets you. And we have this as this kind of given mode of building companies that your ultimate job is to maximise shareholder return, which always seems a little bit sad. Now, there are in companies that are run by founders and bootstrapped, you often see quite different behaviours in them. I'm interested, like, is the problem capitalism or is the problem the nature of the way that we invest in companies? And do you think that either of you would have built your companies differently if you hadn't had shareholders? Do you want to take that, Alain? Well, I'll just answer a little bit of that. I mean, I think in the difference, you know, why do investors... Um, have such different behaviours to, to founders, um, partly they're getting different stuff out of it. Come back to my theory of vanity. And, and also, let's face it, fun. I mean, if you're the founder, you're having a lot of headaches, but you're also having a lot of fun. You're getting a lot of um, purpose and meaning from your work. So um, you're willing to, to suffer certain things, suffer maybe a slightly lower salary, certain hours, etc. If you're merely an investor, your life's quite boring. Um, you know, you're merely showing. You're, you know, you come to that. You come to the office once a month or once a, a quarter, etc. You don't have any of the fun. You don't have any of the purpose. You don't, definitely don't have any of the honour. You're just that boring person who shows up and you know distributes a bit of money. So, <laughs> so that's already telling you. That's already telling you why these two different types expect different things. They're getting so. Even before you discuss money, they're getting such different stuff out of it. One of them's having fun. One of them is having meaning, the other's a bit boring, they are having no honour, and they're definitely not having any fun. So, 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 you know, maybe before we look at the money, um, look at how their life looks, you know. But anyway. I'm going to get that <laughs> clipped and send it round to all the VCs. <laughs> I think they'll love it. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, as I'm connecting my thoughts that, after this. <laughs> so I don't know that I agree that, um, that it is... So underpinning quite a lot of what we've discussed tonight, there is this idea that, you know, if you do good, you sacrifice um, return. And actually, that's fundamentally what I disagree with. I mean, of course, there are times when, in the short term, you, you, the, those, two, those two things are intention. They're very much intention. As I discussed before, you know, you, can, you do the right thing, and therefore, as a consequence, for example, you, you don't make your quarters numbers. Fine. But, but I really, really believe that if you do, uh, if you're allowed by your sh uh, shareholders or your investors to 
take a genuinely long-term view of your business and you really run it with the interests of all the stakeholders in balance, you really care about the customer, you, you, you invest more in your product, you, make, you, you, know, you, you create an environment where people, really talented people thrive. I think that if you do all of these things, and it, even though it hurts your quarterly, short-term, whatever, um, performance, you stand a greater chance of creating an enduringly competitive and kind of uh, market-leading company. So I don't think these things are, are in, in immediate tension to, to that extent. I mean, the short term, yes. And the only way you can really gauge whether a company is doing good things is that if it's willing to sacrifice its, its short term reward. But if you do genuinely pursue a long term view and you really think about building uh, uh, you know, and think of all your stakeholders as you, you grow your business, I think on balance, your company will be worth more. That's, that's my belief. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for tonight. Can we have a big round of applause for all of these? This episode. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. So it was brought to you by me, Dan Murray Serta. I encourage you to follow me on social at Dan Murray Serta for all sorts of stories on mental health and entrepreneurship. But we've also got our social channels at Secret Leaders back up and running now too. So go follow us there, particularly our brand new YouTube channel where you'll be able to see interviews just like today's on video. If you enjoyed today's episode, screenshot and tag us to share the episode or tweet us. It means a lot. And if you really loved it, why not review us please too? It only takes a second. This episode was produced by Rich Martel, with editing done by Harry and Daniel at Lower Street Media, artwork by Christina Naru, and marketing support from Charlotte and Alicia at Max Creative, and bringing it all together seamlessly, our newest team member, Will Stolliman, as the head of podcast. Thanks for the great teamwork, guys, and see you next week.